Gospel of Luke. I've already read from there for communion. But uh, we're going to be in Luke 14 and then kind of uh, some other places. But if you'd like to turn to Luke 14, I'll read a few verses and we'll kind of jump off from there. So Luke 14, 1 through 6. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Some of you were in your Bibles where it says, Son may say a donkey. Saying, but someone in your care, if they fell into a well or into a pit, you wouldn't help them out just because it's the Sabbath day. Now, the Gospel of Luke is written by Luke, who was not an apostle, but came to Christ later on. And we see him, he's a physician, we gather from the scripture. He's a learned man. He's more, most remarkably, he's a Gentile. Most likely. I mean, you know, obviously there's debate and all this kind of stuff, but he appears to be a Gentile believer that was a, really a disciple of Paul. And Paul apparently led him to the Lord. He was a brilliant man, and he was a committed man. We see at the end of Paul's life, writing to Second Timothy, he says, everybody else has left me except Luke. Luke is with me still. So we know he was committed, he was faithful, he had a, uh, an education, and he was writing Luke and Acts that were really kind of considered together in the ancient church um, as an investigative journalist, kind of thing, as a historian. And his, his stature as a historian is, is um, you know, even, even by world standards, I mean, he was a great historian. We, we are a benefit of his dedication to have the, the Gospel of Luke with us. But again, as a Gentile... Just think of that. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the Jew of Jews, right? This guy who was this Pharisee who was um, probably on the Sanhedrin, a zealous man who persecuted the church because of his zeal for God, this, like I said, this incredible um, you know, Jewish superstar in a sense. And then Luke is with him at the end, this Gentile guy who was not under the law. And you wonder what kind of influence maybe even that relationship had on some of Paul's writings. But the Gospel of Luke is unique, and that is the only book in the New Testament, Luke and Acts, obviously together I'm talking, uh, written by a Gentile. All the other books are written by Jews. So we do get a unique perspective from Luke, the Holy Spirit writing through him. And there's things written in Luke that we don't see anywhere else in the other Gospels. And I've been reading through the gospel. I like to do that a couple times a year. Just start Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Just read them all through and you get this whole picture. And, uh, but Luke is unique in a lot of different ways. There's six distinct miracles that Luke records that are not recorded in the other gospels. And there's 18 parables also not recorded in the other gospels. And some of these parables are our most cherished stories. As Christians, we think of the prodigal son. You guys heard of that one? It's like, uh, yeah, I know that one. 
the good Samaritan, the rich man and Lazarus, the publican and the Pharisee. This, this man, when this, this tax collector goes down to the, to the temple and he beats his chest, he says, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, Lord, I'm a sinner. And he compares him against this Pharisee that goes down, thank God I'm not like that guy. And he says, the tax collector went to, to his home justified rather than the other. And we get this perspective again where, where Luke is, is bringing out all these stories about um, just the, the difference between grace and the law. We also see the lost coin, the unjust steward. And as we're coming up on Christmas, it's only within Luke that we see this interaction between Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. We see Gabriel's announcement to Mary and that great song of praise that she sings that we're you know, going to be referring to here this season, the Magnificat, that time when uh, you know, just that whole Christmas story is really enriched in the Gospel of Luke. But this morning we come again in, in Luke 14, and we've already read. This, this um, chapter, Luke 14, is late in Jesus' ministry. It, it looks like this is probably only maybe a few months before he's crucified. So it's, it's late in his ministry. And Jesus, again, has been invited to dinner by what we're told is a ruler of the Pharisees. And the thing that first jumps out at me, this isn't the first time. Luke records three instances. We're going to look at all three this morning where Jesus is invited to dinner by a Pharisee. Now, we know through the accounts in the Gospels, Jesus and the Pharisees didn't really get along, right? Right? I mean, it's like, I mean they were constantly going at it. And, these, and even it says here that they were watching him closely, waiting for him to trip up. So they'd have something against him. The funny thing, I, I, first thing, you know, we're coming upon Christmas. Some of you have family members that maybe there's tension. Maybe there's kind of friction there. Maybe you don't want to go to Christmas dinner at their house. I can relate to some of those things. I have some similar issues there too. And it's sometimes just difficult, right? The thing with Jesus, he, knows, he goes though, right? He goes every single time. And the thing that first stuck out to me is like, why would he go? Why would he say yes to that invitation? I mean, I'd be making excuses. I'd be like, oh, let me get my, let me see here. No, I'm sorry. No, mm, that's not going to work. Oh, sorry. Gosh, you know. He goes. He says, sure, sure, I'll go. He knows what he's getting into. He knows the fakeness that he's going to endure, the scrutiny, the criticism, but he goes. And the thing that I've recognized about Jesus throughout the Gospels is if you invite Jesus, he's coming. He's going to come. But every instance we're going to look at this morning, it doesn't necessarily go real well for the Pharisees who invited him. It doesn't go according to plan. He's going to show up. Jesus will come. You invite him into your heart, he will come. He's not like that crazy uncle that you invite to your Christmas party that you hope he turns down like he does every other year, but you have to kind of invite him just so your you know, other relative doesn't get mad at you. But you know he's not going to really come, and so you throw out the invitation anyway. Like he really showed up, you'd be like, oh my gosh, you really came. Well, thank you for coming. Jesus is going to show up. And I think that's remarkable. But don't think he's going to tell you what you want to hear. Don't think he's going to affirm your bad behavior. Don't think it's going to be on your terms. He's going to show up, but he might say things to you that you don't expect. 
He might call you out on something that you have no idea about. And I think uh, at this point we look, before this account where this, in chapter 13, Jesus has got this huge crowd around him. And he's getting all this attention. And this ruler of the Pharisees, at that point, he walks up to Jesus, I'd like you to come to my house for dinner. Now, Jesus was, you know, a bona fide celebrity at this point in his ministry. That's why I mentioned it's late in his ministry. He's been around. He's done all kinds of miracles that have been attested to by so many people. And he's a, he is a star. And the Pharisees, these self-promoting religious leaders who love the praise of men, were often more than happy to capitalize on Jesus' fame. Remember, they were jealous of him. Even Pontius Pilate said that they knew, he knew that the Jews had handed Jesus over to him out of jealousy. They wanted those big crowds. They wanted that recognition. And so they, he invites him over. Also, though, I think possibly these Pharisees thought they were doing Jesus and the guys a favor by having them over. Right? You know, I think I'll, I think I'll have Jesus over. You know, give him a good meal. He probably needs that. He looks a little thin him and the guys, and, you know, I'll get in with them. And you think, too, politically, these guys were political leaders, right? Maybe they're trying to influence Jesus. You know, Jesus, just, you're great, man, but just take it down a notch. Let's just kind of compromise on this. Let's kind of see things our way. You know, you're really stirring things up, and I'm kind of afraid the Romans are going to come, and it's going to be this problem, and, can, you know, and maybe they're trying to schmooze Jesus and the guys a little bit, kind of bring them over to his way of thinking. But it's funny, they thought, they were doing Jesus a favor. But you see, when you invite Jesus in, it's, you're not doing Jesus any favors. I mean, Jesus is going to do you a favor. I think instead of wanting to be taught, they thought they had something to teach. And every time they just got slammed. You know, their selfishness, their hypocrisy, it would be exposed in the withering light of Jesus' brutally honest observations. So, I, I mean, for me, the first thing that I look at this and I learn from, if I'm going to invite Jesus, which we should be doing all the time, let's be ready to hear what he says, to do what he says, to speak to others what he's spoken to us, and to love as he loves. Now, like I said, this isn't the first time that Jesus has gone to the house of a Pharisee, as recorded in Luke, for dinner. You might remember the time, and this is the time where Justin brought up this morning in Luke chapter 7. Jesus addresses a Pharisee named Simon who had also invited him over. And as they're having dinner, this woman comes in, and she begins to weep and to cry and to make this scene, really. I mean, if you've been at a restaurant and someone started doing this, you, I mean, you, right? I mean, everybody whip out their phones and it'd, it'd go viral. Like, look at this crazy lady. She's like pouring oil on people and washing people with their hair. And Simon is sitting there, and he's watching Jesus, and he says, man, this guy can't be who he says he is. I know this woman, and if this guy doesn't know who this woman is, he can't, I mean, he's, he's a fake. That's what he's, that's what he's thinking in his heart, that, Simon, that, that Jesus is just clueless. And Jesus, being Jesus, knowing Simon's heart, he says, Simon, I, I got something to say to you. I got something to say. And this is all still going on. The lady's crying and she's weeping at his feet and everything. And he says, you didn't provide me with water for my feet. You didn't kiss me. You didn't anoint me with oil. 
Not, you see, and not only is this woman that you're judging here in your heart, not only is she below you, she's better than you. And to Simon, that's, you know, can you imagine? I mean, it's just like, he was, you know, how that just affected him. It's like, you're right, I, I didn't do those things. I don't care for you like she does. I didn't do those things. But she's the one who came to Jesus with complete abandon, with shamelessness. And really, you know, just being real, being who she is, because she recognized the desperate situation she was in, and she went home forgiven. And Simon, that probably touched his heart. I don't know. I hope. I think that's, Jesus knew all that was going to go on. And Simon had a, I mean, God had a plan for Simon just like he did for this woman. And Jesus is just pointing that out to him. So that's the first, that's the first event. But, again, I look at that in Luke 7, and, you know, I just, just to get real, you know, if we, as Christians, we find ourselves in such a setting as one who's been forgiven, as one who God is using to minister to others, representing our Lord and Savior, are we like Jesus, or are we like Simon? Are we real and open, are we sitting there judging? Are we accepting? Are we approachable? Or are we aloof? You know, and, and that's, that's convicting. You know, the sad reality over the years in the church that I've been in, I've met a lot of Simons. Has anybody else met a lot of, any Simons? I've met a lot of Simons. Guys that sit back and they watch and they think and they think they got you figured out and they don't. You know, but the reality is that that crazy uncle that I mentioned, if he does show up, he's not going to open up about his life and pour his heart out to a person like Simon. He's going to pour his heart out to someone who's open and real and willing to accept him the way he is. That's how Jesus is, and that's how we should be. That's how I should be. That's where you get those opportunities, and the world picks up on that. Big time. Next, I wanted to look at Luke chapter 11. And this is one where Jesus just, he just completely lets loose on this, on this guy. And it all starts, so you can look at Luke 11, starts in uh, 34. No, well, where am I? Actually, it starts in verse 37. I said 38 on my thing here. So, Again, he asked him, I'll just read it. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. Similar setting here. The Pharisee was astonished that he did not first wash his hands before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside... You're full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings 
in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. I mean, he just opens up on them. And it all starts, why? This guy's astonished that Jesus doesn't wash his hands. I mean, he has the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the son of God, this great miracle worker, this prophet, this teacher in his house. And what's he worried about? He didn't wash his hands. He didn't wash his hands. Now, washing hands for these guys was a huge deal. And it still is today. If you're an Orthodox Jew, there is an elaborate hand-washing ritual that you go through all day long every day. Um, Most Jews do not adhere to that. I'm saying that's the... If you're a Jewish, like I said, an Orthodox Jew um, following the law, that is what um, is required of you. But the first thing he opens up with is you, well, let me see, what does he say here? You fools, you're full of greed and wickedness. You're full of greed and wickedness. You're worried about me watching, washing my hands, but look at your heart. Did not God who made the outside make the inside also? And this is so common sense, right? We, we, start to, we start to forget that God can see our hearts. We're doing these things. We're doing this. We're doing that. And we think it looks good, but God can see right through you. God can see inside you, your motives, your secrets, your prejudices, your pride. And Jesus says, give alms of what's inside, offerings of compassion and of service of your time. Your love from your heart, what's inside, instead of making this show of tithing to this exacting detail. He mentions these little herbs. So, I mean, go to your spice cabinet today when you get home and take all your spice. My wife has this huge spinning thing in the cabinet. I don't know what's in that. There's spices I've never heard of. But it's probably about that big. There's probably 50 different spices on it. And take a tenth of every one of those, pour it out. I don't know what they did with it. They gave it to the temple or something? Does anybody know? Did they burn it? Did they, I don't know what they did with it. But somehow they were tithing a tenth of every little tiny thing like that. If they got ten seeds of corn or something like that, they would give one to you know, God for some reason. And, God, and, and Jesus actually commends him for that level of devotion on that, on that manner. But he says, you've done all that, but you've forgotten what's really the reason why you would do all that. Justice and the love of God. Others, other people, that's what he's saying. Justice and the love of God has to do with serving other people, loving other people. It's not about giving a corn seed or mint or rue or tithe and all that other stuff. Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You see why they're doing all this stuff? To be praised by others. Not to serve others. Not to give their life away to others, but to be praised by others. And you know, that's a a hole that can never be filled. You can't get enough praise from other people. You can't get enough adoration from other people. It will be, I mean, we see this in our celebrity social media culture today. It's an insatiable desire that can never be met. And it's a dead end road if that's why you're serving the Lord. 
He says they're unmarked graves or tombs. And this is a reference from the book of Numbers, which says that someone will be unclean if they touch a dead body, a bone, or a grave. And it was a major sacrifice. If you, watched, if you stepped over a grave, this was a big deal to get cleansed. If you go back to Numbers and you read what the process was for that, it took seven days and there was this whole thing that they would have to do. And he's saying, just people, just by interacting with you, are defiled. I mean, that's... That's pretty bad, right? I mean, you don't want to be, you want to be bringing people to cleanness, not uncleanness. And people would come to them and try to get instruction or to try, and they would just burden them. They would just put all this garbage on them and they'd make them feel guilty and, def, and they would be defiled in their heart. He's saying, that's what you're like. And they, people don't even know it. They're walking around. I picture like, you know, you go down to Duck Park or something like that. And it's, they're doing all these new improvements and the great lawn and the pond and everything. What if there was like a mass grave under there that we didn't know about? Like thousands of dead people under there that had been slaughtered back in the Indian days or something like that. It would kind of change. It would, that, that park would begin to have a stigma, wouldn't it? I don't want to go there. I mean, there's like some kind of crazy old graveyard or something. And, you know, it just kind of changes the attitude. And he's like, that's what you're, that's what you're like. Outwardly, you look great, but you are, you're just messing up people's life. Just the, and, you know, he would say in another place, you know, you're like, you're like these beautiful tombs, polished and everything. That, yeah, these big marble monuments they would, they would make to one another. And we see in certain places, but inside is nothing but corruption and foulness. This whole issue of hand-washing was a really big deal, again, for the ancient Jews and continues to be so for the Orthodox Jew. Now, I want to be clear, this was not a part of the Jewish law in the Torah. These regulations were things that had been added on by rabbis throughout the centuries to... um, This started, the only washing rituals are for the Levites, for the priesthood in the temple. And they expanded that into where it became just everybody had to do this stuff. And then everybody had to do this stuff in this really onerous way. And I'll just read. This is from Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge. (laughs) But I just, you know, Jewish hand-washing ritual. This is for modern times. So just keep that in mind. If you're an Orthodox Jew, these are the times of day that you have to wash your hands. In a ritualistic fashion, not just go to the bathroom and, you know, do that. In this way where you pour these labors over your hands repeatedly and you say this prayer, you hold your hands up and you say this blessing. And uh, washing is required when you wake from sleep, very first of the day. This was said to remove any evil spirit from your fingers. You wash your hands before prayer. You wash your hands when you touch yourself in your bathing suit area, any area of your body that is sweating except for your face, or when one crops his fingernails. So if you cut your fingernails, you got to wash your hands. Washing of hands when one leaves the bathroom, and that is a good one. Everybody should do that. Washing of hands when one leaves a cemetery. I mean, that's not, you don't have to touch anything. If you went to a cemetery and you leave, you have to do this ritualistic washing. Um, washing of hands And here's where we start to get into what this story is about. Before breaking bread served in one supper, only bread made from one of the five chief grains, wheat, cultivated barley, spelt wild barley, and oats. Washing of hands after eating a meal, 
So before the meal, after the meal. Washing of hands, um, there's this priesthood kind of sacerdotal type washing for um, those who are fulfilling the role of priest today, like in a synagogue or something. And then there's washing hands when, prior to eating, this is a different one from the other one, one dips a morsel of food within a liquid like water or honey or oil, and which then clings to that morsel with the one exception of fruits, seeing that they do not require hand washing. So, I mean, this is a very complicated thing, right? I mean, there's all these times a day that you're supposed to go around washing your hands. None of those things were actually in the law. All these things are added by men. But here's the key. The most developed and perhaps important of these washings is the washing of hands before eating bread. Such washing of hands is in uh, Hebrew is uh, called Nedalot Yadayahim. I think that's close. Meaning the lifting up of the hands. And again, that's that one with that, with that blessing. It's looked upon with such rigidity that those who willfully neglect its practice are said to make themselves liable to excommunication and bring upon themselves a state of scarcity, meaning that God's going to make them like poor and destitute if they don't wash their hands before they eat. And they are quickly taken out of the world. I mean, they have a short life. I mean, this is a heavy deal, right? And this Pharisee's looking at Jesus like, do you know what you just brought on yourself? You could be excommunicated for that. You're an apostate. You're a, you know, I mean, this guy's getting worked up about this. He's astonished. I mean, do you think Jesus just forgot to wash his hands? There was this whole thing over there. I'm sure there was people over there doing the pouring and the laboring and the blessing, and Jesus just walks right on by, hey, guys, you know. Goes, sits down, and leans back, and is like, I'm ready. And he did that on purpose. He did that on purpose because he was, I think, yeah, he said some really hard things to this guy. But Jesus wants this guy to have a new life, too. And this is what this guy needed to hear right then. He needed to understand this, this isn't about hand washing. This isn't about even the Sabbath. This is about your heart before God. And I'm looking at this, you know, like I said, the truth isn't always pleasant or easy or nice. The truth can be like a hammer. But sometimes it takes a hammer to do what needs to be done. And when it comes to legalism and bondage, Jesus is willing to do whatever it takes to smash it to pieces. Jesus said the truth will make you free. But sometimes getting free from something you're in bondage to is difficult. And that's what this guy's going through right here. And I asked myself, do, do, do I, do we have hand-washing rituals of our own? Something we do or we don't do that we think elevates us in the sight of God or in the sight of other people. Maybe something we wear, something we say, the way we talk, certain habits that we've adopted that makes us think we're better than those that don't. A lot of times, those types of things, guys, they start out with the right heart. These additional regulations that the Jews put on the people were started with, we want to be right before God. But then, over time, it became something that pushed people away from God, that made people discouraged and, 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 and just burdened. That can happen to us. Something that starts out with the right heart, but now has become something that we take secret pride in. Something that we think sets us apart from the average Christian. I heard a guy say that one time. 
talking about Sunday school teaching. And it just was kind of one of these mouth-dropping moments that he didn't get, but like, it's like, he's like, well, you know, just any mediocre Christian can teach Sunday school. That's a low, you know, that's like a stepping stone ministry. You know, he wanted to be, he wanted to be at the top. And I just thought, you know, boy, that says it all. And that's why you're not there. That's why you don't have a church. Because that's what you think. But you know what I mean? He didn't see it. I saw it. But there's things I'm sure in my life that I don't see either. This guy didn't understand. He had been taught this from a little boy, I'm sure. Now he's a ruler of the Pharisees, the importance of this washing ritual. He didn't, and Jesus is pointing that out. It's not about that. You know, one thing for me I know is my sobriety. You know, I, I'm alcoholic and addict for years, and I've been sober for about 20 years right now. But if I use that as a reason to boast in myself, my willpower, my fortitude, or perseverance, I'm in danger, in danger not just of using again, but I'm convinced of falling away altogether. I know that. I have to give glory to God for that and be humble about that and not look at others who do use or in that place right now or drink or whatever and think that what God's done in me applies to them. That is a huge danger. You know, we went up to U-Turn uh, a few months ago, and, uh, you know, I'm just sharing with some of these guys, and they're in that place where they're trying to get their life cleaned up, and I shared that fact with them, that how long I've been sober, and I said, man, you've had a lot of perseverance, man. You've really, you've really stuck it out. It's cool. And I'm like, don't, don't go there, because I said, every day I have to make the same choices that you are going to have to make when you get out in the world. And it's the Lord's Spirit, it's the God's Spirit. And I said, the reality is, I don't desire those things. I fear those things so much, because I don't want to lose what God has blessed me with, with peace and life and a new hope and all those types of things. But that's what I'm talking about, you know, and, and don't confuse holiness, a life devoted to God as legalism. I'm not, okay, so a life that is devoted to God, that you abstain from sin out of obedience to God, there is immense value in that. That's your testimony, that's your testimony. But I'm talking about the most insidious fleshly indulgence there is, is spiritual pride and legalism. I've seen it so many times. I'm sure some of you have too. But don't confuse living a righteous life with legalism. Sometimes there's a fine line between the two. As soon as you've become, uh, as soon as you begin to compare yourself with others, to esteem yourself and your own righteousness, you might be crossing that line. That thing that God has freed you from, and now you begin to take pride in that. And then at what point does all of a sudden that start to, where you're like Simon sitting there looking down on this sinner lady, pouring her heart out to God and thinking, man, she's a sinner. She's a sinner. And that's the danger of that, that we, after your life's been cleaned up for a while, that's the danger that we all face as Christians. And that does not endear us to those who are lost think the self-righteous jerk, you know, I mean, he can't relate to what I'm going through. And that's the point, guys. If God's delivered me from drugs and alcohol and those kind of things, it's so that I can minister to those people that are still in bondage to that. And if I start to glory in those things, and 
an unrighteous way, the fruit of that will not be, um, you know, the work that God has in mind, helping others out of that pit. The Apostle Paul was constantly warring against this in the early church. He's speaking of those ritualistic legalists who were leading people astray from grace through faith. He says in Colossians 2, These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Remember these ascetics, these monks that would do things like live in a cave for two years or something like that. And these, that, those early practices where these people would, would deprive themselves and do these things. And yeah, we look at that and we say, what a holy man of God. That has the appearance of godliness. But it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. They are of no value. They look good, but they're worthless. It's an illusion. And our flesh is drawn to those types of things because it's something that we can control. Paul was constantly against, we see again, Romans 3, 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Galatians 3, 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. You're not drawing you closer to God if, though, if you're doing things for that reason. Jesus himself I mean, over and over again, the best example, the most concise statement I think he made about this issue that I'm trying to get to, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And that pretty much says it, right? Pretty much says it. You think, well, what am I doing in my flesh? Is coming to church doing something in your flesh? It could be. But no, come to church, <laughs> please. <laughs> come every single Sunday. But if it becomes this thing where you look at your neighbor and say, I can't, man, that, that loser, he never goes to church. I go to church like every Sunday. I mean, you know what I mean? You start to have this like attitude. Why don't they go to, you know, they should go to church. Maybe they should. We all should. But you know what I'm saying? When that thing that you do, these things that we do in our bodies, the service that we do, is it for the right motives? Is it for um, our own praise, or is it for the praise of God? The Spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Not a little help, not some help. It is no help. And those who look to keeping the law are essentially looking to their flesh to satisfy the righteous requirements of God. You know, this Christmas season, it's kind of trying, it's like running your car on apple cider or eggnog. Does anybody want to try that? Can I try that on your car with some eggnog? My, li- my wife loves eggnog, but she only drinks a little tiny bit at a time because it's not real good for you. Like little tiny, <laughs> little sips. But put that, <laughs> put that eggnog in your car. See how far your car gets. The Spirit of God is that high-octane, pure fuel you need to live the Christian life. Now, by the way, this particular ritual, I started looking at this of hand-washing was something Jesus was exposing from the very beginning of his ministry. There was another time where he and the disciples were questioned as to the neglect of this custom in Mark 7. Um, says that the Pharisees found fault. And that always characterizes someone who's wrapped up in some legalistic religion. 
They're finding fault. They're finding fault. If you find yourself finding fault, and I'm a fault finder. I am a fault finder. You know, that's part of my job. I walk through houses, and I look around, and I, oh, there's a fault, there's a fault, there's a fault, there's a fault. But when I start doing that with my kids or my wife or my loved ones, it's bad. It's really bad. And the Pharisees finding fault with Jesus and his disciples. Why? Because they didn't wash their hands. Jesus responded saying, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. This statement, again, <laughs> just blew, blew up their whole religious system, didn't it? That's what it was all about. What you eat, what you do, what you do, you know, all this stuff that they took pride in. I mean, they didn't eat shrimp or lobster and any of that stuff. And Jesus, right here, before we know later on, the church dealt with this over and over and over again, the early church. And, uh, but this just destroyed their whole belief system and really puts himself, all of a sudden, he's, you know, they have the Torah, they have the teachings of Moses, but all of a sudden, this thing Jesus is saying, it's not that, it's me. And at that moment, this guy had to, like, I mean, people, we know people were like, super offended by that statement because it just tore down everything that they had built up, this edifice, this fake thing that they had tried to build up to uh, look good for other people. But essentially, it meant freedom. Freedom. That's what Jesus is trying to teach people. Freedom is the child of grace. And grace is the child of faith and faith alone. But even before this, this, this one that I just mentioned in Mark 7, there's the wedding at Cana. Jesus' first recorded miracle in which he made water to wine. Some of you guys remember that story. They run out of wine at the party. His mother comes to him. They're out of wine. They're out of wine. What, what am I? What's, what's that? My problem. I mean, Jesus kind of comes back a little bit. I think he's kind of maybe winking at her. It's like, you know, it's not really my time right now, but okay, I'll make some wine. So they bring the wine. So he says, get those jars and fill them up. And these were big stone jars. Has anybody ever looked those up, what they look like? It has how many gallons they are in the scriptures. I don't have that in front of me. But 20 or 30 gallons, I think, if I remember right. But they're big stone jars. Just fill them all up. What jars were those? Do you remember? They were the jars that these Jews would do this hand-washing ritual in to cleanse themselves before the party. Now, apparently that water had been used up. Everybody had done But he takes those jars, these supposedly sacred objects, these symbols of the bondage that this religion had put on these people, and he takes those and he takes them from that symbol of bondage to a symbol of celebration, of wine, of joy, of part, you know, having a party and, and blessing other people. And that's his very first miracle. And there's so much. I've, I've studied that miracle. I love that miracle because it says so much just about who Jesus is and what he's able to do and really what his heart was. But, if you know, the wine even, cel you know, like we celebrated this morning, his blood, that cleansing, that freedom that we get from sin and from bondage to some legalistic observation of religion. Now, you guys, we started out in Luke 14. We're going to go back there finally you've been wondering if I was ever going to talk about that again there's a man Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house there's a man who has dropsy does anybody know besides the doctor he can't raise his hand who knows 
what dropsy is. I didn't really know what this was. Dropsy is an antiquated term for edema, swelling, severe swelling. And edema, what we know now is, some of you may have even had edema for certain injuries or something like that, that swelling where you get the pitting. Does anybody remember like Stretch Armstrong? The toy where you would press into him and he'd leave a big dent. You have to be kind of older to remember that. So you kids are like, I don't know Stretch Armstrong. Any case, this, it's called pitting edema. So you, you press in your arm and it leaves a hole there. It takes a long time to refill. But it can be extremely disfiguring. Huge distended abdomens. The elephant Titus kind of legs where that fluid is just, it has nowhere to go and it just builds up in this guy's body. Usually it's a symptom of, of some other disease, something like heart failure or something like that. Am I accurate? He's, he's going through case files in his mind. <laughs> so, any case, this guy was dying. Let me just get that straight. He was disfigured, he was disabled, and he was dying. And he, he was a mess. And Jesus sees this guy, and immediately his heart goes out to him, and he says, is it right for me to heal this guy? Who would say no to that? Who would say no? Is it right to do this on the Sabbath day? Was his specific question. Silence. Silence. Which of you? You know, so then he takes the guy. Let's look. Kind of the order of things. They're watching him carefully already. He doesn't care. He sees this guy. Is it right for me to heal? Is it right to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remain silent. Then he took him and he healed him. And he sent him away. And you've got to imagine, I don't know what this guy looked like. I, I looked up pictures of, a de- of dropsy. I wanted to put some up here, but a lot of them were super disturbing. And I didn't want to put that up there. Your face can swell up. I mean, in the ancient world, diseases just kind of ran their course. And they didn't have diuretics and medicine to help flush that fluid out of your body. Again, this guy probably looked pretty rough. And to see him just... I mean, is that what happened? I mean, I just picture he, it was just gone. And he's like, yeah, I'm out of here. And you understand, this gave this guy a whole new life. A whole new life where he could work and provide for his family and not be laughed at by kids and, and ignored and, and excluded. And literally, he was, he was probably dying from some other disease that was giving him this condition. He's like, which of you, having a son, an ox, a donkey, whatever, has fallen into a well, you will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. This is kind of, we see this a few times in the gospel. That's what legalism does. It makes you blind and mute in the face of righteousness. There's that account in the book of Job where Job is a righteous man. And he's got it all together with God. And a lot of really terrible things happen to him. And he kind of begins, his friends come, and he begins to defend himself and, and say, no, I don't deserve these things. And they say, yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, I do. No, I don't. And then at the end, God shows up. And he's like, man, I had it so wrong. And he says, I've heard of you, but now I see you, and I can't say anything. I can't say anything. And that's, I think... Possibly that's the silence that we hear at the end of that. They couldn't reply. What can you say to that? That was wrong for you to free this man who's been bound? And there's so many instances where Jesus does this. There's the woman that remember where she's bent over, says she's been bent over like this for 18 years. 18 years, she can't straighten herself up. And he sees her and he heals her. 
And this self-righteous, this pompous jerk, he gets up and he says, if there are seven days in the week, come on another day to be healed. Not like this wretched creature, you know, or something like that. And Jesus stands up and he just rips on him. And he says they were all ashamed. And all the regular people who can see they're not all bound up with all this pride and religious, you know, observances and stuff, they understand immediately what a great thing has happened. It says, should not this woman who's been bound by Satan for 18 years, should she not be freed on the Sabbath day? What better day? The day when you observe God, when you serve him, when you love him, when the, this holiday that God created for us to be with friends and family and rejoice, they had made it into such a burden, such a downer. And no wonder they weren't popular like Jesus was at the time, right? That's the last thing I want to just, you know, that's, that's the thing. That's what legalism does to us. It blinds us just to the reality of God's work in this world. And that's a shame. You know, it gets to be routine, a habit, whatever it is. And uh, so, you know, for myself, I want to take that lesson this morning to the things that I do. Are they the right motives? Are they the right heart for the right reasons to benefit other people? Like Jesus said, are, you, are we giving our lives away in order to gain them? Or are we doing things to gain something back from somebody else? Jesus didn't give his body to be broken, his blood, so that we could be enslaved to ritual or tradition, but that we could be free and so that we could live and serve and bless and share that freeing message with others. And I pray this morning we could be free in him. So, the, uh, Justin, you going to do a last song? John eight thirty six. This is a really easy memory verse. It's not one that I've remembered personally, but I'm going to maybe try to. John eight thirty six. So... If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen? Amen. We can stand for this.